0: Welcome to our Brave Feminine Leadership interview series where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them about women in leadership. I get to hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and their perspective on life and leadership. And today we are all incredibly lucky because I'm joined by Liz Abrams. Liz, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: Wonderful to have you here. Now, let me just touch on your bio before we go any further, and uh, then we'll get right into this conversation. So Liz is an authentic, passionate, straight-talking advocate um, or technology industry executive and a diversity and inclusion champion. She's a wife of 33 years, a mother of a 22-year-old son, and a recent stage four breast cancer thriver. She's got a Bachelor in Behavioural Science, has over 30 years' experience working with Tier 1 companies, including 10 years with her current employer, Infosys, and prior sales and marketing leadership roles with IBM, Oracle, Logica, and Optus. She's worked in Australia and Asia, and her superpower is communication and delivering engaging presentations. She's skilled at business and culture and drives change to achieve revenue growth and has led large and small teams. Liz, um, I feel so lucky to have you join me in the conversation today and I know that throughout this conversation we're going to get into how you and I met and how you and I connected so strongly um, with our uh, shared experiences of a breast cancer diagnosis. Before we go anywhere in that, can I just ask for our audience who haven't had a chance to come across you before kind of who are you as a human being and what's this career sort of looked like that you've navigated so far?
1: So first and foremost, I'm a mum, mum of Joshua, who's 22, and a a wife of Laurie. Uh, We've been together for 33 years and together since I was 16 years old. Uh, And so in terms of priorities, they're, you know, they're my priorities. Uh, I've had a, an incredible career in the IT industry, and it was deliberately in the IT industry. And, uh, you know, when I graduated and looked at, you know, where did I want to work? Um, IBM was the company that really appealed to me because of what they were doing at the time and what they stood for. Uh, and I've had an incredible uh, career in sales. And um, basically, I, you know, I, I, I went through a period where I, where I hated saying that I was in sales because it had some sort of dirty connotation. But um, really, I'm in the role of creating value, value for the company, value for the client and building trust. And you know, when I embraced that, I realized that I've got an awesome uh, career in one of the most exciting industries that uh, I think you can be in as a woman and uh, as a man, and it's been an incredible journey. I feel really lucky to, you know, not only work for Emphasis, but um, have spent, you know, 30-odd years in the IT industry. So
0: I love how you said it was deliberate. So tell me about that deliberate decision for it to be
1: in IT. So um, I come from quite a large family. Uh, There are six kids and my mum and dad, for the best part of you know my memory, growing up struggled uh, financially. Uh, both um, both my parents uh, worked, and uh, they worked hard. They worked long hours, and I really wanted to be. Um, I, I never wanted to be beholden to anyone. So it was something that was really important to me. I deliberately wanted to be financially independent, and uh, I wanted have an opportunity to have a career. So, um, you know, the the research that I did when we had on campus interviews about different companies, um, you know, there was just a lot of, I had a lot of interest in the, um, you know, dynamicism of the technology industry. It was really new at the time. And that to me presented tremendous opportunity. And um, other people that I know that had uh, gone from Latrobe into IBM, couldn't speak highly enough of the company, you know, the, the culture, uh, the fact everybody wore lovely suits. Um, they got paid really well. And, um, you know, there were a lot of women there and they all did really interesting things. So it just sounded amazing and exciting. So Uh, When I was going through the interviews, that was the job I wanted. I got offered five different jobs um, uh, as a graduate, which, you know, I felt really lucky that, you know, I'd landed jobs with, you know, these different companies, but the job I wanted the most was IBM.
0: Mm. So, um, I mean, that's fascinating. What was it like? You know, what was it like? And I assume it was fairly male-dominated at that stage as you entered into the industry. Do you remember
1: that first sort of phase? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because when, when I was offered my job, I actually cried and that, that I was so excited about getting the job that I cried with excitement and the, the gentleman that, um, and I'm still friends with him today. Uh, and uh, the person that offered me the jobs that I've never actually offered somebody a job who has been this excited about uh, getting it. And I don't, for me um, in my entire career, I don't think you should ever forget where you've come from. And I loved that experience. There were men in leadership roles, but there were also women. So right from the start of my career, I saw women in leadership roles, not just administrative roles because there were many administrators uh, and people who were secretaries, but I saw women in leadership roles and, and quite a number of those people I'm still um, in contact with. One of them is actually a mentor to me today, and um, there were strong women through the interview process and there were women who were in senior roles. So I started in an industry where women were um, in roles that were in authority. So I didn't actually know any different uh, until I left. And that's when it hit me. Oh, my God, people are sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, second job I had when I left IBM, it's a quote I'll never forget, and this came from the CFO of the company, a small company um, in a food processing business when I'd only lasted a few months. It's the only job I've ever been fired from. Um, he told me that a woman's place, because I challenged something that made no sense, and I, and in three months I'd I'd done incredibly well. I sold a lot. And he said to me, this is not how things are done. Um, A woman's place is barefoot and pregnant. And at the time, I didn't know any better and I'd never been spoken to that way, let alone by someone who was in a position of authority. And I reacted and I reacted, you know, with a number of unprofessional statements because I was so shocked with how rude and sexist he was. But it opened my eyes to the fact that, you know what, women don't actually get treated in every workplace equally and respectfully. And it set up my thinking with, actually, I think I need to go back to the IT industry and because they're actually progressive. And maybe maybe there are industries where people actually are not treated fairly. Mm-hmm. So it was very deliberate. And I made the decision that I was going to stay in the technology industry.
0: I love how you shared that you know um, the sales sort of element and how early on it was like sales was a dirty word you didn't want to talk about it. I mean, if you don't have a customer, then you actually don't have you don't have a business. So you know, sales is so critical. So let's let's stick with the career theme then. So we're back into the IT space. We've we've sort of poked a toe out and worked out that actually this is a pretty good place to work. How did your career sort of navigate from there, Liz?
1: Um, so there had been a, um, a a change in the landscape in Australia around the deregulation of the telecommunications industry. And uh, I, you know, again, in the same way that I picked IBM because they were leaders uh, in the space that they were in, it was very clear that they had a culture and it was focused on, um, you know, customer, customer value, professionalism. And it resonated with me in the time I was with IBM, that they're actually values that are important to me. I'd, I'd had part-time jobs since I was 14. So I knew that um, I knew the value of money. I knew the value of hard work. And I knew that, you know, if you don't earn money, then you can't pay for things. So I had that appreciation, you know, pre-graduating from uni. Um, and so the job that I, I got next, and I have to tell you there were, I think there were like nine interviews, including with professional actors. The next job that I had was with Optus. And it well, I have to tell you, still now I, I can reflect back on the most incredible journey with that company. I learned so much in that because it was a combination of technology and telecommunications. The industry was being deregulated. Uh, there was a battle on between Telstra and Optus. Um, Optus was all about customer centricity, all about innovation, all about articulating value, flexibility, staff being passionate, training us to present understanding that, you know, we were going to be working with ministers if we were in the government sector, we were going to be working with the CEO or the CFO if we were in financial services. And, you know, I happened to be lucky enough in my my early days to be one of, um, I think I was one of 12 people selected across all of the marketplace to be selected. I was the youngest salesperson that they had employed Uh, and everyone I worked with was top-notch in their sales career from wherever they had come from, and there were men and there were women. And the interview process was gruelling, and, you know, I took the call. Um, I was actually in bed um, and, you know, watching the footy show when this call came through from the recruiter, and I felt like I'd won Tats Lotto because Mm -hmm. the interview process had been so gruelling and the career i had at optus was unbelievable um you know i got to learn about teams about pioneering um how you present about um negotiating skills they trained us for 12 months before we were let loose on the client wow. and and my experience what well, i felt like i had been through a degree mm-hmm. we were we were assigned mentors uh, the process was unbelievable and the leaders were amazing and it was the most incredible job. So that job set me up then to really, really understand. I knew at that point that not only was sales an incredible job, but the idea of how do you create value for the client, for your company and for you is all about your every time you sell, you're working with a different team uh, and um, a different uh, outcome. But what's the same it are these skills of building trust, understanding the client's challenges and problems, how what you do helps them or not. You're defined by what you say no to versus what you say yes to. And uh, if you build trust, you build it forever. And still, there are clients that I um, worked with at Optus, who are my friends, closest friends today, just like the friends I built at IBM. Uh, I feel so blessed that I had the chance to work for those two companies. Um, I went from Optus because there's a point in your career when you knew where you need to um, earn money, uh, depending on your situation. And I needed needed to have a a higher salary and I needed to take on more opportunities. Uh, And I took a job and actually went to work um, uh, you know, there was a job in between, but I ended up at Oracle. And it, and that was amazing. I deliberately decided I never wanted to work for a competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the end of the day, you carry your reputation uh, from job to job. Uh, clients have always been my references, you know, because they experience what it's like to work with you. Uh, I learned sort of later uh, as a leader, you know, when I deliberately took that step into leadership, that actually you need to have great relationships with your colleagues. You need to have good relationships with leaders around you as well. Um, but in my sales career, um, I you know, really had that very deliberate focus on um, not working for a competitor. So I not only worked for IBM in the computer industry, I'd worked in telecommunications uh, and um, uh, um, I worked in telecommunications and then went to work in the software Industry. And that was also really new because it was right at the start of the internet. So when I joined Oracle, uh, you know, everything about the technology space and the internet had just started. Um, So it's like, you know, if you think about a camel and you think about the ridge on its back. And if I think about my career, I've had four ridges, you know, the ridge of technology, the ridge of telecommunications then the ridge of um, the software industry and and, uh, systems which are enterprise resource platforms or the packages that people were buying to run their companies. And when I left Oracle, I made the deliberate approach to get into systems integration and consulting and services because I wanted to see the client get value from what was sold to them. And the only way to do that is to work with the client where they were And to help them um, get the most from what they had bought, regardless of what it was. So I made the deliberate step into consulting, and that was with Logica CMG. And that was an incredible experience. I learned so much good and bad. Mm -hmm. And um, again, there's friends there that I made that I'll be forever grateful for. Uh, And then the next step was back to IBM and then back to um, then to Emphasis. So each one of those jobs, I became more senior and I deliberately sought out more senior roles. Uh, I was a mum by the time I, you know, left Oracle and I'd experienced the worst of the worst of sexual harassment, the worst of the worst of crazy policies around, you know, women, um, atrocious leadership and amazing leadership. And um, it was then it was intentional. I'm a mum now. Um, I'm the main breadwinner. I love this industry, but I need to now get a mentor. I need to have a circle of other women who um, are mums, and I need to work out how do I navigate being a mum and being a working professional because I have no idea how to do it. And there were very few women around me who were mums who had senior careers. So, again, at, at that point in my career, that's when it deliberately I made the decision to, to be a leader, search out um, uh, the the mentors who are still my mentors today and actually look to myself for what needed to change. I needed to change. I was the problem and it didn't matter where I worked. I had to change the way I worked.
0: So many different things through there and I, I, I want to hear that. I want to dig into that. When you say the problem was you and you had to change, what do you mean by that
1: liz so i have um i operate on the you know the the mechanism of the customer always comes first and you absolutely have to deliver value if you don't if you don't do something with the right intention then you're basically lying which is why you know i have this view of uh, I had a view that sales, you know is is a dirty word, because uh, I didn't actually understand that you can have a lot of integrity, you can do a job honestly, you can make a difference for everyone around you. but sometimes you need to you need to adjust your context. You, it, the world's not black and white, there are shades of gray.
0: Absolutely. I needed
1: to have a much better um understanding of um financials, p and l. Um, I needed to understand that different leaders have different drivers around why they make decisions that they do. And if I couldn't talk the same language in the same way to the same leaders, then I couldn't drive the change I wanted. So that was one thing. Um, I needed to work with people. I needed to have a mentor to help me modify how I um, front up Mm -hmm. and how I want to be assessed Um, And I also need to not be so narcissistic in the things that are important. When you're an individual contributor, it's about you, it's about your earnings, it's about your outcomes. But as a leader, it's about the team. And, And different people are at different stages. Not everybody has the same view as you about the things that you're passionate about. So you need to meet people where they are. And it wasn't until I had my son that I realised that um, the, the, the leader that I wanted to be was someone who wasn't hiding the fact that I was a mum. And my mentor actually had said to me, Liz, the number one thing you need to reframe in who you are is you have to understand um, that you have to come to work. It's not a face. You can't just put on this face um, and think this is how you need to be at work. You have to be you at work. Mm. And I'm a mum. I'm a mum first. And I'm really proud of that. And I have a family and my family has to fit into my life. Mm. And when I stopped trying to hide that and think that I was just a guy who had, um, you know, this life hidden away, my whole leadership and style changed. And I, I when I joined... Uh, emphasis, and they embraced family first. It was very much a culture about um, the family. It was a culture because um, because the Southeast Asian culture really values family mm-hmm. and extended family, and they really value intellect. and And I, what I learned in the culture uh, was coming in as a leader was that uh, yes, if I needed to leave on a Friday to go to my son's cricket game. That was fine. No problems. Nobody ever said, "Oh, you can't do that." Mm-hmm. Nobody said that. everybody, everybody loves cricket at emphasis. Everybody values um, the fact that, yeah, you're a you're a mum and you're a you're a, a woman, and it's important that um you know if you're a leader, you need to model. You can't be what you can't see, mm-hmm. and you can't do what you're not doing. So if I was expecting this from other people, And I had to do it myself, and I shouldn't be embarrassed about that. Mm -hmm. It was, it was. uh, My mentors really helped me navigate uh, authenticity, um, financial, and you know the financial speak. Being able to have that economic discussion and understand that, and also uh, the fact that if you don't know, you're never the smartest person in the room. Your number one job in in every leadership role is to work out who are the smart people and, you know, define smart. Smart can be, you know, uh, academically smart. Smart can be savvy about the culture. Smart can be savvy around what it is you need to achieve. Surround yourself with the smartest people and then you need to build that team to align to a common purpose. Those three leadership um, skills that I then worked on moving forward really helped me grow into a leader, into a way that for the first time in my career, I was going to work and I was like, this company is awesome. I actually feel like me.
0: Hmm. What a um, what a gift and, you know, to, to be able to have that, to be able to come to work and show up at work um, comfortable being you. Liz, I want to talk about... Um, even in that environment, there came a point in your career where the wheels fell off a little bit. Um, do you want to tell me about that?
1: Um, so the the um, are we talking about you, my you health? You headed, challenge?
0: You headed over to Singapore and got involved in this uh, project.
1: So I um I had made this decision. I was working in this amazing job. I had this incredible job, and there was a cultural shift in. Uh, the 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 client that I was working with at the time, and it wasn't sitting well with me professionally and personally. So I made a decision. You know what? I'm going to say yes to opportunities. I I, I remember listening and uh, listening to this podcast and reading this book about you know the art of saying yes. So I put up my hand. Um, for different things uh, because I wasn't loving the job that I was doing and there were, you know, different things that I was doing on top of my job. And um, the CEO at the time asked me if um, I would go and help the team in Singapore with um, with this uh, enormous program. And, um, you know, it's probably going to last about, you know, three months uh, and your job is to lead this team, work out what we need to do to, you know, navigate this because we'd never done what we we're being asked to do. And um, you know, you probably weren't I probably wasn't going to be there that long. So of course I put up my hand, said yes, and um and and I was I was uh, not only were we doing well, but the situation was way more complex than anybody had expected. And the client that we were working with asked me to be part of the contract. So there were there were like four people that they asked to be part of the contract. One of the people was in the US, you know there was me in Australia, another person from uh, from from India uh, and someone from Europe. So they asked us to be you know part of this contract and with me taking on an overall leadership role. And um and then the deadlines were insane. They were of our own making. We should have been brave enough to change the deadlines, but there were many, many deadlines over a you know, over a period of the next year. And um, you know, I had a I had a view of, you know, of course the customer's always right. Uh, we've got this big delivery team, we're in another country, we can't get this wrong, it's very high profile. And so, you know, we did crazy things like sleep on desks. Um, you know, work um, insane hours from early in the morning until late at night. Uh, And this process went on for 18 months.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was not good.
0: Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. And um, let's talk about that led to some health challenges.
1: Yes. So, and again, I would say, that you know, uh, there's so many lessons to take from that. The experience was amazing. I, you know, I loved what I learned. I learned so much, good and bad, about me, good and bad about the, you know, the journey. But um, I did have health challenges. I had an underlying um, issue with my heart, and uh, you know, for a number of years it had been fine. You know, I had no issues. I had been taking medication and managing that heart condition. And, um, and my weight had not been a problem for quite some time, but I put on about thirteen kilos in the time that I was working overseas. So, um and I wasn't sleeping well uh, because you know I was working across multiple time zones., uh, so I you know, I had, first of all, I had an underlying health issue which became um which actually, you know, flared up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was overweight and what I was eating. It was really the times I was eating. So I was eating early in the morning because we were starting early. I was exercising super early in the morning, um, and then eating early and then eating, um, over the course of the day, whenever I could find a moment to eat anything or forgetting to eat. And then because it was so hot in Singapore, you know, eating at late at night. So my eating window was stupid and, um, and I was drinking alcohol, not, you know, not not, um, socially because I was socializing with the team, uh, with the client, with third parties. So, you know, whenever there was an opportunity to go out and I was living there on my own, not with my, um, not with my husband and son. Um, so the stress, I felt like I was an egg and I was literally being boiled. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and, but it went over a long period. So I had a, I found, a, um, I found a, a lump in my breast when I was there, turned out to be nothing, but it really gave me a shock, uh, and um, I asked to come home. Uh, it was the tail end of the program, and really, I was not effective anymore in the role that I was in, and I just, you know, I had to come home for, uh, for um, you know, legal reasons, because, you know, you unless you become a citizen, you can't stay in Singapore, so... Um, uh, I came home and then very quickly jumped on the escalator of another complex program. And this time, I was living in Sydney. Uh, so now, for a period of uh, two and a half years, my my um, my health was terrible. I would now put on maybe sixteen kilos or twenty kilos. I can't remember because it was over this multi-year period. And I was looking at myself, and I'm and I knew I was overweight. But I, it was like you know, this is what I needed to do in order to do these, you know, you know, drive these these outcomes. During this second stint in Sydney, um, COVID happened, and um, you know, we were in the middle of this program, and um, uh, we we're in the we we're in the middle of this program, and uh, we all had to work remotely. So I was going through this process and my husband's mother passed away, uh, maybe three months after I'd got back. We're all working at home at this point. Mm -hmm. And um, it was awful. You know, it was a a terrible experience. She was in a nursing home. She didn't die of COVID. But, you know, literally, you know, we were going and visiting her and, and touching her through the window. And Every time it was like, like your heart would break into a million pieces mm-hmm. at that emotion. And I suddenly thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm I'm working crazy hours. I'm visiting this, I'm visiting my husband's mum with the family, and I'm rushing back because we had all this stuff to do. Well, she passed, she had a stroke, she passed, and the, the family dynamic was incredible. I can't describe it to you how emotional that was. She, for all intensive purposes, was my mum.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And two months after she passed, my husband was diagnosed with prostate cancer. So I felt like this window of stress, now we're coming into the third year, um, and this is the first year of COVID, navigating a full on job, um, my husband grieving for his mum, me grieving for his mum, my son grieving for his grandma. My husband gets prostate cancer. He has to have the most extreme operation for that. Um, He goes through the surgery, recovers really well, and then um, I find a lump in my breast. So now we're into, you know, uh, six months after um, my my mother-in-law passed. I found the lump in May uh, 2021, again, in the second year of COVID. We all, by that stage, uh, if you're over, you know, 50, um, you had access to the first vaccine. Vaccination. I found the I found the lump, uh, and uh, then had to wait three months to have the mammogram because you know the health department were delaying mammograms um, if you'd had vaccination because one of the side effects was uh, swollen lymph, lymph glands. Yes. So um, by the time I had my mammogram, and you know I was in a panic because I knew I had this big lump there. I could feel it, and it was growing, and it was sore. By the time I was diagnosed with breast cancer, it had already spread to my spine. So I was stage four advanced cancer. What a couple of years it had been from Singapore all the way through to being diagnosed with with cancer. It was both my husband and then me. So unbelievable experience.
0: And Liz, this was, uh, I mean, it wasn't at this point you and I met, but it was over this story that you and I, um connected, um, having gone through a shared diagnosis, i um, I was blown away. I mean, when I think of your career and the story of your career as sort of you know part one in many ways, um, i I've gotten to know you now where the intention that you are bringing to what you are doing, um, and the ability to, um, you know, actively seek out and find joy in everything you're doing as well, I think is just so inspirational. So I just want you to reflect back on, um, you know, tell us about the intention now um, and tell us what you wish people knew or that you knew in those crazy sort of two and a half periods because women are leaving the workforce right now uh, in greater numbers than ever and they're citing a couple of reasons and one of them is stress and exhaustion and the other one's around lack of opportunity. Why, and and I guess I want to say as well, prior to my diagnosis, I was working extremely hard for a period of time, willingly, completely, um, you know, loving what I was doing, why do we do it, and how do we help
1: get a message across about please, please look after yourself? So I think we do it because we're afraid. I I had been, I think, for twenty years, afraid of failing. I was on a mission to prove that um, that I could be really successful within the you know the my career, and I was the main breadwinner. So there's even more. Pressure, and I put it on myself. Nobody put it on me. I'm I'm a very ambitious um, and proudly ambitious uh, woman, and and you know I I have always chosen to see the glass half full. I made the decision to take that job in Singapore, and I loved it. I learned heaps. There's a, a lot of things that I, as I said, I wouldn't do, and I and 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 that I now I do because of what I've learned. But I also um, didn't prioritize um, my health. I didn't prioritize sleep in the way that I prioritize sleep now. Even though it's not good because of the cancer medication, it's still better than it was when I was working overseas and on that project in Sydney, and before that, the one in Melbourne. But um, I didn't prioritize um, the way I eat and what I eat. I didn't. I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. Um, and how I eat now. If, Food is fuel. And if you put bad fuel into your body, then um, your body, um, like a car, breaks. Mm-hmm. And there's only so much bad fuel you can put in your body before there's an impact on the car. And, you know, I, I like to think of, um, and my sister taught me this because she's an athlete, she's a professional athlete. And her gift to me when I got cancer was to make me strong. So she educated me. On fitness and my body, uh, I'd always loved to to move and to exercise, but I didn't understand what exercise meant, um, and so I made having cancer my job because my career stopped, Melissa. Yep. The I was on a trajectory; it was a deliberate trajectory of what I was going to do next, where I was going to go in the company. You know what was going to be next, and it stopped and. So I decided, well, you can either look at that in a bad way or a good way. So I made the decision, as I do with every bad situation, is to find the good in that. Um, I wanted to learn as much as I could about what I could do to help my journey with cancer. I am not an oncologist. I'm not a breast surgeon. And just like a project at at work, you've got to have the right team around you. So I did search out and reach out to people who are in my network. To learn and understand what sort of team did I need around me and so that I did that right in the beginning literally in the week waiting for my confirmed diagnosis to um, to then uh, seeing you know the, the, the surgeon who I'd already lined up and so I had the right team in place I didn't have the right body to support a cancer situation so I needed to completely change what I ate and I did that and I also needed to rethink and I did I asked this question so many times to the people that I was asked to speak to and what I learned is the relationship between being well and food there isn't a lot that they teach you when you're going through cancer it's almost like the only thing you get you get is the medicine you get the you get the drugs but you don't get the knowledge about appropriately what do you need to eat not just while you're going through chemo but forever, because when you have cancer, you have cancer forever, it can come back. In my case, it had already spread. So my situation, which affects only 10% of cancer patients is an advanced or metastatic um, situation, which, you know, is effectively, it's a terminal diagnosis, I have a chronic illness, it won't go away. And so knowing that, then I had to learn I had, to, I had to read, I had to speak to people and then understand. So I chose to face my cancer journey with an open set of ears and, a, and an attitude of, you know what, I need to I need to understand what the doctors do, I need to understand what the nurses do, um, I need to speak to other cancer patients, I need to hear what other people say. And And every day there has to be something positive that I take from that. Uh, People had advised me to walk before each treatment and walk after each treatment. So I did that because people told me it would be better for your health. Mm -hmm. Um, My sister, who's an athlete, suggested that um, I change my diet. Um, And someone I met gave me a book called The Cancer Code. And in it, it said you should cut out gluten because gluten turns into insulin. Insulin is sugar. Sugar fuels the sort of cancer I have. So I chose to cut out gluten. I understood from the health professionals that I was talking to that while you're going through treatment, you should cut out alcohol because alcohol is carcinogenic and it's sugar. And I thought, well, if it's carcinogenic and it's sugar, shouldn't I just cut it out? It's not good for me. So I made the decision. It was like going cold turkey. I cut out my favorite, uh, favorite drink, champagne. I cut out all alcohol. Uh, I cut out meat, red meat. And, and, I, and based on this book, this cancer code and other people I'd spoken to, I decided to only eat between 10 o'clock in the morning and 6.30 at night. And I went into a starvation mode, um, you know, every, every day after, you know, like every day, like a fast. Yes, I started losing weight. I'm not joking. It was half a kilo every week. And I, my skin looked amazing. I was walking, I was training, um, and um, I was going through the treatment, but I was feeling good, like I was bouncing back from chemo within days, not Mm. a week. Mm. And um, I've had the burns from the radiation, and I didn't have fatigue. I had burns. So um, my oncologist recommended I go to the Olivia Newton-John Centre and get acupuncture because it would help accelerate the healing. I'm like acupuncture acupuncture's needles like what's that so um it helped it it healed my my breast within one session and then i had all these other side effects and the acupuncture helped with that so i decided to understand why does acupuncture work and why don't more people have access to it so mm-hmm. the more i learned the more i thought this is crazy why aren't we giving more cancer patients access to these kind of treatments that Olivia advocated for. So then that became my mission to understand it. I started back at work in August and I made the decision that if I'm going to live with cancer and have a shortened life, it is going to be my life's mission to help other cancer patients get access to kinder medical treatments like um, uh, acupuncture, access to information on their health and their wellbeing. And that before I die, I want to tell as many people about the importance of getting their mammograms done, not delaying it because they're too busy at work, and to prioritize their wellness. And you can actually be great at your career if you're not terminally ill. And um, if you have an illness and you don't do something about it early, it'll get worse. So that was that then became it like clicked with me in uh, June of last year, and I made the decision that, you know what, this is going to be what I want my life to be focused on. If I've got three to five years to live, because that's the prognosis, I'm going to make this my mission. So, I
0: mean, there's so many parallels, Liz, in, in the way you are tackling this new mission to leadership. You know, when I when I listen to that, um, you know, I just I think, um, you know, open mind, curious, exploring, understanding, um, working out who you need to build relationships with and, you know, how you can get that support and where you can get that support. Do you are there moments on this journey? because I know most leaders I've spoken to share with me, you know, some of the some of the things that get in our way of doing things that we want to do. And one of the things that come up all the time is fear and sort of stepping outside of your yes. comfort zone and stuff like that. Do you still have days where fear stops you on
1: this mission or has that changed? Yeah, it's changed. Um, Melissa, I used to be fearful of many things. Um, but now I have a thousand. I, I'm working on the, the basis of I have a thousand days to live. I may have many more. I may have five thousand days to live. But I'm working on a clock of I have a thousand days to live, three to five years. And um, and what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? I'm actually not afraid. I've had the worst prognosis, which is I'm going to die. I'm going to die earlier than, um, than you know, other people. Everyone's going to die. But, you know, you you don't know when you're, you know when you're born, but you don't know when you're going to die. So someone's given me a gift and they've said, you're highly likely to die in three to five years. So what do I want that three to five years to be like? It's like having an accelerated, um, you know, business plan. And if you only have a short amount of time to have a goal that's really worthy beyond you. You know, I have ambitions. My ambition for work is I want um, diversity and inclusion to guide the way that we make business decisions. It's the most important thing I think companies have to prioritize to really, really, really build strong morale, strong intention. Um, innovation. You need to have the most diverse workforce that gives you the best ideas and the opportunity to be really creative. And that comes from all different sorts of people. So that's my ambition at work. But my ambition personally is to have much more of an impact on those um, uh, people going through the journey that I'm I'm going through, cancer patients, people who are battling any form of, of, of chronic illness, and give them access to treatments that get them out of the revolving door of illness. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't take any um, pain medication, um, Melissa, none. I don't take medication for my neuropathy that I had, um, and that's really common. I don't take any pain relief. I just have the acupuncture and my diet and my exercise regime. And I know other people are not at the same space that I'm at, but I've learned so much, and everyone I speak to that's stable in their cancer journey has had these deliberate changes to what they've done in their life. And there has to be some merit to it. The more I learn, the more people I speak to, the more books I read, the more professionals I speak to, they all say the same things. So if you incorporate them into your life and that deliberate nature of making a decision to have a goal that's beyond you, I feel like I have purpose and it brings me joy to know that I can help other people be well for a day for an hour to face things with hope and wow what a what an amazing day it is when you interact with someone and you go I you've helped me I've learned something from you and I've helped you think about this problem in a more optimistic way. I
0: love this Honestly. moment you, when you shared with us right back at the beginning of our conversation about um, how you cried when you got the job at IBM and, you know, that that joy that you felt um, at that. Um, what are the moments that bring you that
1: joy now? Um. So every day i I look for the moments uh, because you know when when life is short, if you people often say, "Oh, time flies. Time doesn't fly. It's deliberately stopping yourself from taking the chance to just recognize, oh, that was a good thing. So everything brings me joy now. This morning, I went for my walk. It rained um uh and uh and I walked with my umbrella and I love I love the smell uh that comes from um the from you know the trees and the ground when it when it rains and just smelling that I listened to a podcast this morning that made me laugh and I didn't expect to laugh from uh what I was uh, listening to I got to speak to um my son yesterday and the conversation um made me both laugh and cry and And that that was joyful. Um, uh, I made a salad this morning, which looks unbelievable. I'm really excited about having that um afterwards. Food brings me joy. Um, music makes me smile. Um, everything. like you can find joy in everything. It's you know, it's just about how you're choosing to to face it. Liz,
0: um, I can't think of a better guest to have had on our podcast. I want to ask the final question that I ask of everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change?
1: I I do. To me, uh, brave feminine leadership is um, taking the time, first of all, to challenge, um, speak up. Uh, and not just accept if something doesn't look right, smell right, seem right, it's probably not right. And if you're waiting for somebody else to say something, then um it it can't happen unless you're prepared to speak up, regardless of whether you're in a in a management role or not. But for a leader, brave feminine leadership as a leader is having the courage. To say something, um, and um, because you can't be what you can't see, and you have to be able to uh, speak up and say something. And early on in your career, that's hard because you know you're afraid that you know you'll be judged or people will think that you're not okay. But as a leader, it's, it's there's an obligation to say something because. A culture can't change unless people deliberately make the changes to do things differently. And for me, bravery is around speaking up and knowing deliberately that what you're doing is helping other people come through with you and it doesn't happen by accident. Cultural change is around taking those brave steps to make the change.
0: Liz, thank you for using your voice um, in such an important issue and thank you for sharing your voice as part of our conversation. I've loved having you.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the discussion, Melissa.
0: And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second-guessing themselves so that they can maximise their influence and Impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.